The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Chelsea Football Club finds a generous buyer. The U.S. Fed spreads the misery. Welcome back to the Newsroom. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, a columnist at Breaking Views, coming to you from London. Roman Abramovich, the sanctioned Russian billionaire and owner of Chelsea Football Club, has found a buyer for his club. Late last week, he agreed to sell the West London team to a US consortium for £2.5 billion. He had no shortage of interest. Former Chelsea soccer player John Terry and Formula One driver Lewis Hamilton submitted bids. But in the end, a group led by Todd Bowley, co-owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, won out. With so much interest, the club didn't come cheap, and replicating the profitability of the US baseball team will be tricky. After all, Chelsea needs a new stadium and investment to stay competitive. Meanwhile, it was a dire week for the US stock market, and Fed Chief Jerome Powell has few appealing options. Surging inflation is likely to hit the poorest households hardest, as they spend the bulk of their take-home pay on food, fuel, and shelter. All of these are soaring. The rich are also getting stung by a falling stock market as investors fret about the pace of interest rate rises and what they might do to economic growth. First up, I chat to Liam Proud in London about a chunky bid for Chelsea Football Club and the spending plans of the new owners. Next, I speak to Swaha Patanik in London about US inflation and how it has put Fed boss Jerome Powell between a rock and a hard place. Roman Abramovich, the sanctioned Russian owner of Chelsea Football Club, has found a buyer for the club. I'm here today with Liam Proud. Welcome back, Liam. Great to be here. Hi, Amy. Yes. So you had a great view this week. Uh, very well read. Very Lots of interest, obviously, in Chelsea, probably beyond our UK readers, I would say. So tell us about these, these new buyers and, and what we might expect from them. Yeah, so, it's, um, so the context here is that you know, Roman Abramovich, who is the um, former commodities and oil magnate, um, you know, Russian billionaire who the UK government claims is close to Russian President Vladimir Putin and has therefore been put on the sanctions list. So he has to sell the club, basically. He's not going to get any of the money for it. He's He said he's going to give the, the takings to charity. Though there are a few caveats there, which we can talk about later, if you like. So you know, the question was, who's going to buy this thing? We originally thought that it was going to be quite a tough thing to get done, just because of all the sort of uncertainty around sanctions. You know, can you do business with this guy? A lot of uncertainty over what was actually happening to Chelsea while the sale was being agreed. There was a bunch of restrictions on the club and how it could um, operate. But in the end, it, it drew a lot of interest. So you saw these kind of consortiums being put together, it seemed like quite quickly the buyers all decided that, you know, you needed to team up into groups to make this thing work. Um, and there are a few leading consortiums and a lot of them started doing things like putting putting famous people um, on board. You saw one of the consortiums got Lewis Hamilton, the F1 driver, mm-hmm. um, to, to get involved. There was John Terry, who is a famous soccer player for, for Chelsea or football, if you're, if you're British. Um, who was a Chelsea player who was involved. And in the end, um, the winning consortium was actually a kind of American-led thing. So the main figure um, is a guy called Todd Bowley, who is the 
part owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who are a baseball team. And he's kind of fronting the bid, but most of the money is coming from a private equity firm called Clear Lake, which is based in California, manages about $70 billion, and they've just launched a big $14 billion fund. So for the purposes of of kind of Chelsea going forwards, I think what's relevant is that these are primarily financially motivated owners, um, which was very much not the case with Roman Abramovich and the sort of past generation of of um, Premier League owners were seem to own these things as trophy assets, assets really, and they just liked kind of going to the ground and, and running a club and all of the kind of lifestyle benefits. I don't think that's the case here. Um, you're going you're gonna to see some financial motivations. And so, Liam, because there was obviously quite a lot of interest, as you mentioned, with all the different consortiums, did that sort of drive up the price then? Like, are they getting, is the, are, is the part owner of Dodgers, are they getting kind of a good deal with this? I I don't think they are getting a good deal, the buyers. I think you're right that it turned out to be a pretty competitive auction in the end. I mean, I don't think it was formally an auction, but it was a pretty competitive process. So it's 2.5 billion is is pounds is what they're paying for the equity. Now, let's just assume for a second that there's no debt on the club, which is a bit of a complicated thing to work out what's going on there. Basically, Roman Abramovich um, is owed £1.5 billion because Chelsea just burns cash relentlessly. So it's needed this kind of funding lifeline from him, which if you average it over the, the 19 years that he's owned the club, it's about £80 million a year. He's, he's propped them up by on average each year. So... They've built up this massive debt to him. Um, he said originally he didn't want this to be paid back, which was slightly different saying I'm definitively writing off the debt right now. Um, probably legally, he can't receive the money right now. He's sanctioned. He can't receive any kind of fresh funds into his bank accounts. Um, and even if he did, uh, he wouldn't be able to do anything with it. But there is some nuance there. And it, it seems like they haven't been quite as clear. You know, this is a personal view, but I I don't think we can say definitively that that debt is not a concern here, but just put it to one side for now. Mm. Then you've got the 2.5 billion in equity value, which is about 5.7 times the revenue that Chelsea made last year. So that's quite a high um, valuation multiple. The the enterprise value to revenue multiple for Manchester United, which is listed, um, another big UK football club is about 4.7. So it's definitely a premium valuation. So if you are buying this club and you want to make money, but you're paying a high price, what do you think you can do? Because you obviously have to spend money, right? As in you have to mention in your piece, you kind of have to revamp the stadium. You have to keep Chelsea competitive with all the other teams uh, paying for players. Um, So what do you think what do you think they can do in order to get that? I guess that get that return. I think that's the big question, really. I mean, there's there's a lot of different sort of you know financial models you know how do you how do you try and make money from a business you know in this case a a sports team the the predominant one in football soccer at the moment is to not try and run a load of cash out of the club is to not try and sort of pay yourself big dividends each year is to basically invest in something that grows into a big valuable almost like kind of media property which people want to advertise against and, and you know makes loads of broadcasting income and then you know by the end of the 
ownership period, maybe you'll be sitting on a big kind of capital gain. So your equity value will have gone up loads, even if you haven't managed to take cash out of the club. So okay. that's kind of approximately the model that um, the Liverpool owners are following. And it's also... Saying, yeah. What is it, is it, so what is the club that could be basically the model for Chelsea? I mean, it would probably be, yeah, probably be the Liverpool model. Or, I mean, Manchester City would be kind of similar. I think that's the way they've gone about it there. They haven't run that club to take cash out of it in the way that the Manchester United owners have, for example. If you look at what Chelsea and Liverpool have done is they've been quite prepared to leave the cash flows within the club, reinvest them and sort of grow the franchise value, grow the grow the equity value rather than pay themselves massive dividends. And that's interesting because the Chelsea owners, the new Chelsea owners, assuming this thing gets approved, they've reportedly, this is according to Sky News, they are not allowed to pay themselves dividends. So the only way that they will be able to make money, I would argue, is by growing the franchise, by making it a more valuable property when they sell it, which they're not able to do for, for 10 years. So how they can do that? Um, well, they've, they've, they've also made some commitments there. So they have to invest £1.75 billion over their ownership. Now, I would estimate just on what other teams have done that if you want to build a new stadium, which I think everyone agrees Chelsea needs, um, that's about a billion pounds. So that leaves 750 million pounds for sort of like, you know, general stuff. Um, I mean, I think they, they they have a really good women's team. Um, they're, they're, I think they've won the title. They're almost certainly going to win the title this year, um, but they probably want to invest that a bit more. There's a sort of youth system, a foundation, an academy, all kinds of things. So they're going to end up putting quite a lot of money into this thing. And the only way it's going to work financially is if it is worth a lot of money after 10 years, basically. Good. Okay. Well, I mean, absolutely. A competitive process and a competitive football league. Uh, we'll watch closely. Thanks very much for that, Liam. Great to be here. Thanks, Amy. Well, it's been a tough week in the US stock market. Concerns about inflation, interest rates going up, and Jerome Powell doesn't really seem to be making anyone happy. Uh, that was the view from my colleague Swaha Patanik. Uh, Swaha, you're very welcome back. Hello, Amy. Well, yes. So tell us all about it. I mean, this is obviously something we're seeing kind of everywhere, right? This is inflation. We've got it in the UK, Europe, the US. And I guess everyone's sort of looking to the US, aren't they, about what they're doing, what they're doing with interest rates. And, and yeah, so tell us, why is Jerome Powell, why is the, the chief of the Fed kind of making everyone miserable? Well, I mean, the, the issue with the Fed is that it started off thinking inflation would be what it called transitory. That's very patently not turned out to be the case, as they've admitted. And so now they are going for raising interest rates much faster than anybody had thought, um, sort of say at the end of last year. So they've got two problems that are arising. First of all, inflation has hit its highest in four decades in the US. Um, it's sort of about 8.5%. The latest figures that will come in uh, soon may show a little bit decline, but it's still you know, many times above their target inflation rate. These sort of inflation rates hit the poorest in society the hardest. That's because the, the price of energy is rising very fast. Food prices are going up very fast. These are the sort of things that people who are on lower incomes or on welfare tend to spend the bulk of their 
you know, what income they do have on. So say um, there's uh, the Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania, for example, has calculated food, energy and shelter account for 62% of expenditure for households who incomes in the lowest sort of quintile, that's the fifth bottom, the last fifth of the uh, range of income spreads. By comparison, those who are in the top 5%, it's you know, much lower, about half of spending. So there's not much of a buffer. That's what was happening with inflation. And that's happening in a lot of countries and developed countries. So what's started happening, as you say, is the inflation concerns, Amy. And that's really taken um, a bite out of the stock market valuations. Now, this is at the other end of the wealth spectrum. What you're getting is people who are well off uh, in the US and who tend to have money invested either directly or indirectly in the stock market. Now they're being hurt. So you, he's really making everybody across the wealth spectrum unhappy. Absolutely. So if you're if you're looking at this and you're thinking inflation is really high, the way the Fed tends to tackle that, and we're seeing that again, as I said, through other central banks, is to raise interest rates. But your piece is talking about that actually this there is a danger that this goes obviously too fast. And is that, do you think that's kind of what's what's happening at the moment? Well, the issue is too fast for whom? The central banks had thought they got inflation under check and, you know, they thought everything would revert to what they call mean reversion back to the average for the last 10, 20 years, which was pretty low, around 2% in their target or even below. That hasn't been the case. So when we say, is it going to be too fast for inf central banks and even the ECB, it's not too fast if you're trying to get inflation under control before it starts being entrenched in all our psychologies and so wage rises go higher, companies are always sort of raising prices and it becomes a vicious spiral. The issue is, is it too fast for the economics of, you know, promoting growth? That may be the case. And I think to your point about what's happening elsewhere, the Bank of England last week raised rates and said it may have to do more rate rises, even though it's forecasting a recession. Uh, coming up next year. This is sort of, you know, we haven't seen these sort of trade-offs having to be made by central banks for a long time because they've been able to sort of say, we haven't got enough inflation so we can keep rates very low and help growth. And there was no trade-off between those two things. Now there is, and central banks' mandates are really focused on getting inflation under control. So that's what they'll have to hone in on. And is that it? Are they kind of are their hands tied in that there isn't really a way of making anybody happy? Is there a way of making? I mean, as you talk in your piece, there is obviously there has been a concern about the divide in the very wealthy and the very poor. And by hammering both ends, <laughs> surely that comes comes together a little bit more. But obviously there is an economic cost to that. Is there a way? Is there any is there any anything Jerome Powell could do that would maybe ease this a bit? Um, as you say, it's a it's an odd way to get income inequality down. But um, for Jerome Powell, I think probably they need to focus on inflation because if they don't, the costs of actually getting the inflation psychology out of the economy again will be very hard, losing credibility for a central bank and having people start believe that you are not really going to keep inflation around your 2% target, that's dangerous. So I think he has to do what his mandate is. Now the question is whether on the fiscal side there are things the government can do in 
not just in the US, but you know, around the world, um, to shield the people who are the poorest and the least well off and who are being pushed into poverty by what's happening with energy and food prices. Well, fascinating stuff, Swaha. Thank you very much for that. And uh, yeah, we'll talk A pleasure, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslick in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.